calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. This is Bitches on Comics. My name is Sarah Century. And I'm Essie Flinor. Bitches on Comics, because comics are for everyone, bitches included. In a very special episode, we're talking about Uncanny X-Men number 143. Written by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Pencils by John Byrne. Ink by Terry Austin. Colors by Glennis Wine. Letters by Tom Orzachowski. That's it. So Uncanny X-Men number 143, which is starring Kitty Pride. It has one of the classic X-Men covers that has Kitty Pride terrified in front of a Christmas tree. There's like a demon somewhere in the background and the demon is the Nagari. Yes. The funny part, right, is like the Christmas tree because this is all about how Kitty has nowhere to go for Christmas. Yeah, she's Jewish, right? So we talk about that a little bit in the issue, but we'll talk about it more after. So basically what happens is in the beginning, we just see Storm getting shocked. She's getting struck from the sky, you know, and we don't really know what's going on. And Storm just kind of shrugs it off for whatever reason. (laughs) There's there's people who are dead and she's just kind of like, wow, that's such a trip. (laughs) She's like, yeah, I've never felt terror like that. Oh, oh well, no big deal. Shouldn't discuss it with anyone. Shouldn't make sure we have a file on this. Just move on. It's Christmas. Just hear those sleigh bells ringing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, every single time. We go back to the mansion and we see that Professor X is studiously making Kitty go through things again and again and again so that she knows all of the sequence to fly the blackbird and all of that. (laughs) And it's Christmas, and then Warren's just like, hey, listen, I've got to get going. And Professor X is like, oh, we're out then. 
peace and takes off with Warren. He's like, oh, Peter, Storm, let's get out of here. And Wolverine's like, fuck you guys. I'm with Yukio. And and Angel's like, I got to get laid. I don't have time for this. They all basically are just going to hook up with somebody. We don't know exactly who with all of the people, but we're pretty sure that it's like them meeting up with their dates in town or whatever. Kitty's like, oh, <laughs> the 13-year-old girl. And also, uh, she's just got finished doing this whole thing where, you know, she was kidnapped by Emma Frost. The Dark Phoenix saga happened. The X-Men fought the Wendigo. Days of Future Past happened. All of these really horrific things have happened in about the last six issues. And it's since her very first appearance, right? So she's been and around six issues. All of this catastrophic stuff has happened. Some of the biggest stories that we know of today, when we look back at X-Men lore of the time. Everybody's just like, fuck it, leave the kid. Who needs her? We're just going to leave her at the mansion. It's no mention of the fact that Storm <laughs> literally just got struck from the sky and experienced the worst terror of her life. She's well, just like... Because she got struck from the sky in fall, Sarah. So it's already the 24th of December. How could she possibly remember that still? That's right. I forgot about that. So yeah, that was a minute ago, but this is now. So <laughs> Kitty uh, just decides that she's going to continue studiously working because this poor girl has been trying to reach out to people emotionally her entire life. And it's just oh my gosh. never going to work out for her, I don't think. Well, she decides, you know, I'll spend some time in the danger room. I'm going to work on my physique and my strength. And then she's like, why do we have to work out? This is so dumb. I have superpowers. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, Kitty, why, why do we have to work out? It is dumb. You're asking the important questions, but now we find out why you have to work out. This is the ironic <laughs> thing. It's like the writer is your dad, essentially, being like, all right, I'll tell you why. <laughs> because demons can break into your house and yes. fuck up your whole life. So then it's just a chase through the mansion, essentially. The alien keeps trying to get her. She keeps phasing, and the alien just is right there all of the time. And essentially, when we say the alien, we mean the alien from Alien. <laughs> yeah. The movie like Alien. A it's a demon alien hybrid. I don't know. Yeah. It's probably both, both and neither. And yeah, she's phasing through walls and she's being clever and she's like, oh, I'm here. Oh, I'm there. Now I'm over here. And then she keeps thinking, oh my God, he's right behind me. This alien is right behind me. I'm going to die. And uh, then she hides in a closet and peeks out of the closet and every queer person everywhere went, oh, but then <laughs> she doesn't actually come out of the closet in that scene. To this day. <laughs> so uh, that's basically the comic. They come back and everything's kind of wrecked. And she's just like, yeah, isn't that fucking hilarious that you like left me alone to die? <laughs> like yeah. everything's wrecked. She's like, Storm, are you mad? <laughs> Storm's like, uh, I think I'm proud. Does that make more sense than being mad? <laughs> She's like, it seems like you did the right thing. Well, I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this whole thing is just them being like, all right, kitty, that's great. Bye. <laughs> Storm's like, I got Yukio and Logan waiting upstairs. I got to get out of here. I got to go. There's this whole thing going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Oh, my God. Today we have a guest. Hi, I'm Ilana Levin from Graphic Policy Radio. Graphic Policy Radio is on all the podcast platforms, and I am on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Ilana underscore Brooklyn. I am very easy to reach on Twitter. So when did you start reading X-Men comics? 
So I think my story is kind of funny slash unusual. I'm the oldest kid and my brother is five years younger than me. So I started reading X-Men when my brother was old enough to read X-Men and I began stealing his copies. Like everybody begins stealing their brother's X-Men, but usually it's an older sibling and not a younger one. So (laughs) it wasn't until I was in like junior high, basically. I was the oldest sibling (laughs) and I was so obsessed with X-Men because I saw them on the show and I had seen the comics, you know, it was early 90s era. I remember seeing Storm on the covers and just being absolutely obsessed with it right away. One of my brothers reads a little bit still of comics and tries to stay up, but he has a kid, you know, so that makes it hard. Mm -hmm. My brother's on the road all the time, so he still reads a lot of stuff, but he has a hilariously like permanently teenage insistence to like never read DC comics. It's like kind of, <laughs> it's like, it's like kind of a joke at this point. I'm like, but you've never read fourth world. He's like, I- I'm sorry. Is this published by Marvel? I'm like, let me have this conversation with you. In this day and age. <laughs> it's, at this point, it's like just trolling me. I think more than anything else. A hundred percent. It's just trolling me and not even mention any kind of earnestness. I have this in my notes somewhere because it's come up in other times I've been interviewed. I was super into Peter David's X-Men, X-Factor, which is why yeah. the I was the person who had to report about the fact that he like was completely anti-Romani bigot was really heartbreaking because I'm oh, like, yeah. this is my fucking childhood you're ruining, you asshole. What do you remember from that time, though? Yeah. Like, the first time yeah. you picked up this issue, you read it, what went through your mind? Okay, yeah. So it was definitely like 92 or so, basically. I've always been a strange combination of ridiculously pretentious and enthusiastic about things. Which, <laughs> so what was really attractive to me about X-Men in particular, as opposed to some of the other comics which I read, but also enjoyed but wasn't quite as obsessed with, was how political it was. At the level and understanding of history that I had as a junior high student, I was like, what an amazing metaphor for the civil rights struggle. Of course, now, if that's still your perspective on it, uh, then you probably should do some more reading about who Martin (laughs) King actually was and who Malcolm X actually was. But, you know, for like a white kid of age 13 or so, I think it was not so unreasonable to draw that kind of conclusion. I also really like, like, particularly about X Factor. I'm from the DC area, despite my Twitter handle. And X Factor was always like in their Georgetown apartment. And I'm like, yeah, their Georgetown apartment. <laughs> I love the team book where you have all these different people coming together, bringing their talents. And obviously, like, the whole, you know, hated and feared for who they are and still trying to save the world thing plays into the sort of heroism slash persecution complex that I probably have a combination <laughs> of reasons, some valid and some not. It's complicated. The political aspect of it was always really crucial for my appreciation of it. Mm-hmm. But I didn't read the Claremont stuff till later because this was like the end of the Claremont that, you know, this was like the Jim Lee, Fabian Nicheza period where I was coming in. Yeah, me too. I think that one of the first X-Men comics I got was maybe Generation X number five or X-Men maybe number 25, but it was definitely right after Claremont had left. And so I definitely had to go back as well. I imagine we got into the comics, it sounds like, right around the same time. Yeah. Do you have any recollection of whenever you very first read Uncanny X-Men number 143? Um, No, I don't think I read it until like a lot later. Definitely not when I was young. It definitely Uh was like college or or later Mm -hmm. yeah and you just read back through it Uh uh-huh i did (laughs) 
<laughs> it's interesting, right? I've read this comic so, so many times in my life at different times of my life and thought such different things and looked at it from such a different perspective every single time. This is one of those kind of famous early issues where we've got Kitty Pride, you know, versus the alien. What I found to be really interesting is, is that other than Magneto, she was the only X-Men character that was Jewish. I don't I know think if that's that true. true, but I think yeah, like I don't know if Sabra had been introduced at that point, but she certainly wasn't a member of the X-Men team and she wasn't American, you know, and that's right. not like a, the same sort of thing. Yeah. Um, this comic still, it's Kitty Pride on the cover, but it's Merry Christmas. Like, yes. <laughs> oh my God. So somebody said something about like, you know, of course, the X-Men left Kitty Pride all alone on Christmas just because he's Jewish. <laughs> and I, like, retweeted that with the headline, this is a pretty quintessential Jewish experience. <laughs> like, the Kitty Pride <laughs> there fighting yeah. aliens, who's like a rocket ship in the basement, being left home alone during Christmas because she's Jewish. <laughs> um, at, bonkers, at 13. Right? Yeah, 13. Right yeah. after Wendigo <laughs> Happy Bar Mitzvah. Hope you survived <laughs> the experience. <laughs> Yeah, that was a very interesting thing. Essie, was this the first time you read this comic? Absolutely the first time. And <laughs> I have to say that I loved it. Um, I sent Sarah my favorite panel, but it's the one where <laughs> Kitty's poking her head out of the closet and it starts, I'm out. And it's like, no, girl, I wish you were out. I wish you were out of that closet, but you are firmly in it still. <laughs> She's trying. She struggles against the text. Yeah, yeah, it's not her fault. It's not her fault, right? It's yeah. really not. I was talking about how very, very bisexual Kitty is in Marauders. I'm actually writing something about it. And somebody had written, um, you know, I really hope that it shows her coming to terms with her being bi. And I bristled for a second because I was like, she's already at terms with her being bi. It's like the narrative that isn't. And yeah. I don't want to be like, look, like Jewish people don't have our own internalized homophobia, whatever. But like, you know, like we're kind of not as bad about it as people who are raised in hardcore Christian households. Like, I'm sorry, like Kitty is clearly oh, sure. in like a, cons you know, small C conservative, which in Judaism is not actually conservative at all, or possibly reform like Jewish synagogue. Like she didn't grow up with her parents yelling at her about how she shouldn't be gay. Like even if it was the 80s, they assumed she was straight, but this is not like a hardcore doctrinaire thing. So I'm like, no, Kitty's like, okay with being bi. Actually, the problem is the meta narrative. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it was possible that she, maybe she felt like she was pressured to sort of closet herself in certain professional contexts because being mm -hmm. out as bisexual is like seen as if you're sharing some personal sexual information with people. I know having been given the fucking stink eye. Like people who think that me telling them that I'm bi is like me telling them my favorite sex position. I assure you it is not. These are oh not equivalent at all. Ilana, I am also identity. bi. And I get that all the time. Right? Actually, yeah. Later, she's doing the thing about the M-Day speech or whatever, you know, and she's doing her whole, hey, I tell people that I'm Jewish because like you need to know and I need to mm -hmm. know how comfortable I can be with you. That yep. whole conversation is really interesting to me. And I wrote about that one time just saying, you know, she has so much pride around her identity and that's something that's so great about her. And they're trying to fit her into this box that she just doesn't fit in anymore. And we've allowed her mm -hmm. to go forward in a lot of ways, but we haven't let her go forward in that way. <laughs> My opinions of Bendis's work are all over the map, but I yeah. think that scene, that scene is great. Yeah. And I think it goes to show Bendis is really good at talking about being Jewish. Mm -hmm. Bendis is Jewish. Yeah. Bendis is not good at talking about being gay. Bendis right. is uh-huh. 
And we can also look back like, you know, the way Claremont had Kitty using the N-word inappropriately. Yeah. But in a way that is like completely believable to me, though, I'm like, yeah, that's a mistake she would have totally made. Actually, I can see that. Yeah. Still, like, not necessarily the way I would have suggested Kim as a white writer, like, be telling that story. Nope. But, um... (laughs) But nevertheless, some of these things with her Jewish identity really match up well. And then other pieces of it, you know, are written by people who don't have those identities and are doing a bad job of it. And look, it's not to say you need to have a particular identity to do a good job on a character, but like you need to really do your homework and take it seriously if that's not you or else you end up with the by erasure coming out scene of Bobby that I'm still not over. So anyway, I wanted to respond to the question about the cover of the issue. So this is Katie... She's Jewish. Everybody knows she's Jewish. That's way up front. She wears like a giant gold Star of David. And on the cover of the comic, it's got this whole Christmas theme to it. And it made me think about An American Tale, the Five-O movie. When I was a kid and the Five-O movie came out, the American Tale, like we saw it. And like, it was like so much more important to my mom than it even was to me. Like, you know, my mom was born in a displaced persons camp in Germany after the Holocaust. So like the Jewish post-Holocaust refugee experience is like, that's like literally her life and stuff that she remembers. And as a kid, I also thought it was really good. I hadn't seen, you know, Jewish things represented in a kid's movie before, especially not one with a budget. They started releasing like Christmas merch with it to go in Happy Meals. And my mom was ready to fucking punch someone because if she was like, you've taken our Jewish thing and you've written it into Christian hegemony, this is unacceptable. We should get to have our cultural things celebrated without inscribing Christian symbols all over them. And then in like a future movie, they did a Fievel Christmas thing. And I'm like, fuck you. Fievel is Jewish. It's not even subtext. It's right there. And like, it is just a wildly inappropriate treatment of this character. You know, on the one hand, all this happening to Kitty, her being home alone on Christmas, this is all like very believable. You know, Claremont's Jewish. And I think he also sort of has this sense of like, yeah, people are just going to not think about you and forget about you. And maybe, you know, you don't want to go and do Christmas stuff, but you don't want to be left alone either. But then the cover, you know, which is not Jewish, is just sort of like Christmas tree. This sells, right? (laughs) (laughs) This uh, is definitely a Christmas story for sure. (laughs) Alien while I was Jewish, the Christmas story. (laughs) I also noticed that they had... Hanukkah starting on Christmas Eve and in that year that's not when Hanukkah started either so I always think it's funny how Christians are like oh it's Christmas so happy Hanukkah and it's like that's not how that works that's not how any of that works like there's rules to this yep I would have been interested in seeing like an actual Hanukkah comic and like what that would look like but I think that it's all been sort of very cursory and you know like a lot of folks we are always reminding people like Hanukkah is actually not a major Jewish holiday it's you know something that became bigger in America because people were tired of being excluded from holiday festivities and I do think that there is a basic human need to have some celebration in winter because of seasonal depression, right? Yeah, for sure. The idea, there are some other Jewish holidays that we have during these dark times. I would love to see Tu B'Shvat, which is one of the many holidays about trees. We have lots of holidays around trees. Get more of a shout out and that's in the dead of February, you know? (laughs) I don't want to play into the idea that Hanukkah is itself a really big deal for Jewish holiday. Like, it still would be good to have like a real Hanukkah story. It is sort of one of the quintessential, they tried to kill us, we survived. Let's eat special foods holidays, which is like, sort of the major overarching theme of Jewish holidays. And obviously parallels really strongly with X-Men, except 
with more food. So yeah, I'm <laughs> been curious, actually, have you had a very strong connection with Kitty or how do you think that Kitty's portrayal has been overall just not in this one single comic? I would think that Claremont knowing something about it would help. But then also mm-hmm. I notice in a lot of Claremont stories, it still isn't that prominent, right? No, it's not. Yeah. I actually, I noticed that Kitty's dad grew a beard for this. <laughs> yeah. And like that yes, is sort of like, that. is sort of like signaling he's Jewish. Mm-hmm. And I, I would think that that's like not a total coincidence. I think it was like, oh, that's right. Kitty's family's Jewish and drawing a beard on her dad. Oh, we should probably have that acknowledged in script then. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I didn't really read Kitty too much. Like I, I missed Claremont the first go around, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't really read Kitty till like later on. And it was sort of was like handed to me like, hey, Lana, there's a bisexual Jewish superhero character. who's <laughs> also a gifted child. And maybe you have thoughts and feelings about this. I was like, well, my matter of fact, I do. Um, so I, I, I I kind of wish I'd stumbled on her earlier, but I really didn't until later. Like my core X-Men connections from my actual youth are so much more about the members of X-Factor. Right. And Pietro, who is also Jewish and super ADD and has great hair. And I was like, I also like feel Pietro's pain so hardcore. I think it's just a a pure circumstance of my particular age and what was being emphasized in the comics at the time did not really have Kitty at Mm -hmm. an impressionable point in my life. But now, like, I mean, I'm having such a strong... Can we spoil Marauders a little bit? Yeah. So like in Marauders, okay, I've been struggling a lot with, and folks can listen to me struggle with this more on my podcast, Graphic Policy Radio, (laughs) struggling a lot with metaphors vis-a-vis Krakoa. You know, it's hard for me not to sort of see this and be like, oh, this is Zionist nationalism and is going to go badly for everyone involved in the end. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. all the other queer people are like, queer utopia. And I'm like, I wish I was happy like you are, but I'm sad. Mm -hmm. Um, And One of the things that struck me was as soon as we get the Marauders, you see Kitty trying to get in to Krakoa. She can't use the gate. She's being blocked. She smacks her face against the floor, like breaks her nose. It cannot get in the normal way. And I was like, oh, this is about how bi people are policed. Like we are policed from queer communities. We're not automatically accepted as being a part of them. I know because even before I read Marauders, like in my show notes about like, what are my concerns with Krakoa was the whole like, well, who decides who's in or not point, which again, as a bisexual person, you're thinking about all the time, who decides if I'm queer enough, who excludes me, who includes me. And, um, and now it's like this exact parallel happening in the comic of itself. I really don't know that they're going to let what has been decades long subtext, which has been signed off on by the character's creator, become text now. Although Marvel's current going rate is that when straight creators want to make characters canonically queer they're allowed to whereas when queer characters you're not um so i think it's possible that maybe we do get kitty to be bi in this i think she's probably not but it's possible i give it like a 30 percent chance that we get you know canonical acknowledgement of kitty being bi here but i think that like dugan and other folks like they know about this and this underwearness (laughs) of the subtext you know is part of the story and like kitty is being gatekept from Krakoa because she's bisexual. You heard it here. And now she's going <laughs> to use her bisexuality as part of the way that she will help other people find freedom outside of the binary system of, you know, I don't know. It's, it, it, I'm working on it, but um, <laughs> well, I'm ready to hear it when it's all worked out. I love Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful. Um, one of the things I was thinking about is like, you know, they leave Kitty alone, home alone on Christmas. And yes. as a Jewish person, it's like, 
I don't necessarily want to do Christmas stuff. I just don't want to be left completely alone. <laughs> and in a world in which there was more than like one Jewish X-Men at the time, you know, I'd like to think like Ben Grimm could have come and picked her up, you know, <laughs> and taken her to the city. And they could have been a part of like the traditional Jewish ritual of Christmas, which is to go eat Chinese food and watch a movie, right? <laughs> and she's not the only character who would probably not be celebrating you know, Christmas. Like, That's I don't what know. I thought too. I was you know? like, I don't think they're all Christian. We, Colossus is an atheist because he is Russian. So I kind of joke that I really kind of hate Christmas, but it's because I hate the music and how yeah. oppressive it is. It's so bad. Nobody needs to hear that that many times. Nobody needs to hear it everywhere. It makes me shop less. If you need to hear Christmas music that bad, then like bring a headset and you can listen to it yourself. So, you know, it's not like I don't bear any grudge. Like, I mean, historically, sure. like, Christmas was a time where a lot of pogroms actually were committed against Jews, meaning like massive organized attacks yeah. um, gone on with government permission, but without official government oversight, like in Eastern Europe against Jewish people. So, but there's no reason not to invite Kitty. You know, she can say, I don't feel comfortable doing that, but thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Uh, maybe give her a Christmas gift and say, this is a Christmas gift. Like we're not crazy about being given Christmas gifts. You can say this is a <laughs> gift or something, but like just have some awareness and some sensitivity. So I developed a headcanon um, about what <laughs> Kitty should have been doing on Christmas 1981, instead of being left alone to literally fight the alien from aliens by herself. <laughs> so Ben Graham should have picked her up to go to see uh, a movie in this, you know, in New York City, and they would go and have Chinese food with like, and, and go to the movies. So I was like, okay, well, what was in the theaters then? Realistically, the adults probably would have taken Kitty to see Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, that's probably what would have happened. Mm -hmm. But if Kitty was anything like me back then, she probably would have rather have seen Body Heat, which was just in the theaters as a sexy thriller with Kathleen <laughs> Turner. I mean, yeah, that so that's sounds like the Christmas of my dreams. <laughs> So I'm going to pretend that that's what actually got to happen. Maybe, maybe next year, you know, that that's, that's what happens. But um, incidentally, there was a lot of really good movies that came out around Christmas, 1981, uh, according to the internet, including the great Muppet caper what? and yeah, yeah. And Wolven, which is like a really good B movie about werewolf men, construction workers in New York. <laughs> what else would it be about? That's exactly <laughs> what that title screams. You know what I also was thinking about Ilana is that, not only does Kitty not get invited, which is like its own insult, but like, it's not like she gets a spa day. It's not like she gets like a moment alone in the fucking mansion to be like, thank God these old people are gone. It's like, she can't catch a break in some ways. Like the demon, the alien is like this manifestation of Christmas chasing her through the house. Ooh, yes. You know, she's like, I can phase through walls and I cannot get away from this thing. And I was just like, holy crap, that is what it must feel like. That is such a good <laughs> use of that metaphor. They're totally. You know, one of the things that I noted reading the comic this time, especially, was how she's actually being really responsible. When you have the 13-year-old left home alone, you think, like, oh, she's going to go use the danger room in a dangerous way. But, right. like, no, she goes and uses the danger room. In a safe way, she's like, we're just going to have a gymnasium workout by myself. Mm -hmm. And, like, she's being responsible. And, That's what and, sets her apart from know? the New Mutants, because the New Mutants go right <laughs> into the danger room and try to die as fast <laughs> as they can. Kitty's exactly. Like, That's why she calls them the X-Babies, you know? <laughs> so, you know, it's true. Like, Kitty can't even catch a break when she's behaving. 
Um, she's can. She's the good kid all of the time through the entire history of the X-Men and even into adulthood. And she just never catches a break. Until she could be a pirate now. Until she becomes a fucking pirate. And that's going to be the best. Yes. This is the prime kitty era. I think the last thing I really wanted to ask was, how did you feel... Because there's those times later whenever Magneto and Kitty have those interactions and Magneto sometimes will draw back and not go full force on her and not try to actually, like, he'll realize that he's hurting her and be like, oh my God, your family went through the same shit that I went through and like all of this realization. I feel like that's a very intense thing and I would just like to know what your thoughts are on it, I guess. It's really important. And it would be implausible to me for him not to act that way, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't make I mean, sense for his yeah. character, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's good. I mean, I wish he wasn't the only Holocaust survivor in the Marvel Universe. And right. it's hard, like, as time passes and fewer and fewer people are still with us. But when I began reading X-Men, the fact that Magneto was a Holocaust survivor was, like, already, like, canon. And that was, like, the story as I entered it, even though it was something that was actually added, you know, later by Claremont. Right. Um, and it would be great if there were, like, other Holocaust survivors and they weren't necessarily just responding in the way that he has. Even, But he's, like, you know, super sympathetic. Like, I can't help it, you know. We're, right. Magneto made some valuable points, you know. <laughs> um, yes. Just the fact that... He is a civil rights leader and the way that they portray him and the way that he can't answer certain challenging questions and the way that he leads people to their desk without concern a lot of times. To me, that says bad things about civil rights leaders because a lot of people, mm-hmm. of course, made that you know terrible <laughs> analogy that we know is incorrect about Malcolm X and uh, Dr. Martin Luther King with you know Magneto and Xavier. That's obviously wrong. But I think about it sometimes because I also think that's what people think of Malcolm X, right? Is somebody, they see Malcolm X and they're just like, this is somebody who like won't stop at anything to destroy everything. And it's just like, no, because Malcolm X was super smart and he had a lot of plans and you never would have asked him one of these difficult moral questions and had no response from him, right? Or had had a weak response because he really believed in what he was doing as most civil rights leaders do. So I always think about him from that perspective because I think whenever they portray Magneto as being so villainous, they're also doing something where they're kind of selling a lot of people short. They're selling Mm -hmm. people of all kinds of different civil rights movements short. I think that's totally true. Yeah. Yeah. And it's why it's important to get people in their own words and like not just, you know, rely on some of the metaphorical stories that are told. Right. Um, One of the fun things that we were talking about with the Hickman X-Men relaunch actually was the whole like demand to release all mutant political prisoners. Like that's straight from the Black Panther Party's list of demands. Uh And as explained by them, it actually makes a lot of sense. They had a demand that all black people who were in prison be released because none of them had received a trial by jury of their peers because of the fact that black people hadn't been serving on juries. And you're like, oh yeah, no, that makes sense. That's true. And I really think that that's echoed in an effective way in the new X-Men series. But of course, like the person who it plays out with is Sabretooth, who's like the (laughs) least compelling, but it's interesting. And then of course, what do they do? They like sentence him to live in pain inside the roots of a tree forever. So that's really not a de-incarceration philosophy there, but it is about mutant autonomy. Yeah. We'll just violate your, your basic mutant rights for the rest of time. (laughs) Yeah. That sounds great. 
Yeah, I hate how Sabretooth turns into the incarceration metaphor all of the time, too, because they did that already. Like, they did that all through the Mm. 90s, whenever he was living in the basement and stuff. One of the biggest problems I think that we see a lot whenever it comes Mm -hmm. to incarceration is the attempts at rehabilitation are so paltry. And truly, you can't do restorative justice between Professor X and Sabretooth. That's not how it works. The people that he has to do restorative justice work with are the people he hurt. Mm-hmm. And Professor X is doing it all wrong. He's doing it with his ego taking the first step instead of actually trying to fix the harm that's been done. And yeah. even if you can't fix it, you know, you have to try. And that's what's missing from so many of these stories, I think. That's a really, really good point. I mean, and even the image of Sabretooth is like on a chain like an animal yeah. like was just disturbing to me even at the time. Yeah. But I will tell you that one of my favorite issues of X-Men when I was a young person, and I still have a great deal of fondness for it, is specifically that issue of Jean versus Sabretooth. Yes. A devil in the, the devil in the house. Um, what is it? Like uh, X-Men um, number 28. Mm-hmm. And I'm I, obsessed I loved with it. that comic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've written about it and it's a great yeah. issue. Um, Thank you. But that issue just really, as a kid, struck me. Like, the thing it does really well, um, which isn't the Xavier political piece of it, it's the feminist piece of it, which is mm-hmm. that, like, Jean just sort of draws the line and says, you're not going to terrorize the women of his household anymore. She beats the fuck out of him and leaves him, like, begging for more. And then through her, like, leadership, all the other women are like, you know what? I'm not scared of you anymore. Yeah, And she doesn't let him talk shit about the other woman either. She's like, no, we're all better than you, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I love that that came about because she was kind of like, okay, Xavier, like whatever random shit you're doing right now. And then it was because Jubilee was scared and she starts crying on Jean's shoulder and Jean's totally 100% there for her. And she's like glaring off to the side, just like, I'm going to comfort this child and then I'm about ready to go do some shit. And like, <laughs> I love that because I love when Jean's compassion is the triggering point for her. Is she sees somebody being hurt and it's usually somebody that nobody else is taking responsibility for. And then she becomes infuriated. And that's when she gets impatient, you know, and that it is only really impatience with Sabretooth because she doesn't actually have any reason to fear him. So all of that to me, I think it's one of the best issues of the X-Men of the time. So I'm glad you really like it too. And that dialogue is so good between oh, her so good. and Sabretooth. It's really powerful and naturalistic enough to still feel really contemporary when you're reading it. Do you think that there's a time when Magneto has had a moment like that that was really good that you enjoyed? Because I think about that scene where you have somebody's making them be accountable for the things that they've done in a way. Like with Sabretooth, he's kind of not a very receptive audience, but Magneto generally is. Is there a time that you can think of whenever that went off well? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I would have to do some more thinking about that. I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't something like that. And some of the Joss Whedon X-Men or Fraction, but I don't remember off the top of my head. I still love the scene of Magneto summoning the bullet that Kitty is trapped in, like, back through space and into Earth. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I'm, um, I'm drawing a blank, and I wish I could answer your question. Well, we'll have to have you on the show again sometime to talk about that, you know, because we we're gonna want to interview you again because this has been amazing. But I just wanted to check if there is anything else that you wanted to say about either Kitty Pride, the X Men, or about this specific issue, Ilana. No, uh, I think that's it. You know, I'm I'm working on a, an essay it should be out pretty soon about Kitty Pride bisexuality in Marauders, and um, please send it our way when it comes yeah, out. We'd love to share. I will it. do that. <laughs> 
I will do that. And, and I also, you know, covered some on my own show. So perfect. I think that is I think about we it. Have- And I've got one question left for you. It's a question we're going to make like our signature interview question. Who are your favorite bitches from comics? I got to love Emma Frost. Um, (laughs) That's going to be everybody's answer. I I know. (laughs) Okay. So to not just be that person, I also have got to love Emily Astor from Phonogram. I'm like the biggest Phonogram fan in the world. So (laughs) all of the ways in which she is an asshole are so relatable and beautiful. And I feel like I understand her bitchiness so thoroughly. I love that so much. It's amazing. So Ilana, thank you so much for talking with us today. This has been incredible. There's nothing I love more than nerding out with comic book nerds. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys. This has been great. We have something super cool coming up, don't we, Sarah? Yes, absolutely. What is it? It's going to be a first life podcast recording, which we never did before because it's the first. Ah! (laughs) Okay. I'm so, 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 so excited. So we are having our live recording on December 8th at 7 p.m. at Mutiny Information Cafe in Denver, Colorado. Super excited about it. What are we going to do during that? We are going to talk about comic books, first of all. We are definitely going to talk about conventions convention organizing we're probably going to covet my pull list because i'm probably going to have to pick it up while we're there yes because i buy my comics from mutiny uh what's your most exciting part of this oh my gosh we get to have special guest christina moldonado badhand join us oh she is a denver-based cosplayer comic artist fucking activist she's doing it all she runs cons as like a a female con organizer and she's going to talk to us about what that's like and she is just the coolest this is the first i've ever heard of that but i'm excited here's a quick question for you how did you sleep last night if your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless i have the answer it's a podcast called sleep wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleepwave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. This week's comic of the week is Elvira's Haunted Holidays, issue number one. Written by Joey Cavalieri. Art by Frank Springer. Letters by Albert T. de Guzman. 
Colors by Shelley Iver. I was baffled whenever I discovered that DC Comics had the rights to Elvira. Right? I have read a ton of Elvira comics, and I had never heard of this. I think that it was a thing for at least a year. Like, they had 11 issues or something? Yeah, something like that. And then one of them is this bonkers issue. (laughs) It's so funny. So it's like four stories in one issue. So they're all like four to five pages long, which means they're pretty fast-paced. And they're all Elvira in tone. Mm -hmm. You know, so macabre, but also sarcastic, dry. Anthology horror format. Yes. Even though it's Christmas stories, which is pretty great. We do enjoy that. The first one is Elvira living a Christmas carol. And she hates Christmas, which is very relatable. So much. Yeah, hilariously hates it, over the top hates it in a way that she doesn't hate anything else (laughs) that I've ever seen. Totally. A Christmas carol is a thing. It's going to happen to you in your life. Yeah. Brace yourself now. It's coming. I don't know when. You're going to be a dick to someone. And you're going to get haunted by some ghosts. Let them go to the poor house. And guess what just happened? You ordered three ghosts. Three of them. You're going to be visited. They're going to try and make you feel guilty. They're going to divide your life into three (laughs) chapters, even though life is way more complicated than that. No, it's not, Sarah. It's three chapters. Oh, right. Duh. I forgot. Duh. Except for this story, which is four chapters. Okay, well, that's like an exception. (laughs) So, you know, the ghosts are trying to, or the spirits are like, we're going to help you have this moment. And the thing is, it's like, it's, it's Elvira. She does not give a fuck. She doesn't want to go back to her school. <laughs> they take her back and <laughs> they're like, don't you feel bad? She's like, no, fucking burn that building down. And then it cuts <laughs> to like a little version of Elvira setting the school on fire. Yeah, she sets the school on fire in this. <laughs> this is a nihilist and an anarchist. And I... Think that she's the anti-hero that we really always needed in this realm. In the present, you know, they're like, look at the power of, of humanity and blah, blah, blah. And they go to a <laughs> mall. Yeah, and she's like, yeah, you're not helping your case. She's like, oh, is this goodwill to men in scare quotes? She's just like, ugh. Some mom is beating up some other parent for a toy for their kid. It's yeah. just wild. A lot of people talked about that in the 80s. So it was yeah, showing up. True. It shows up in child's play. It shows up in a lot of media. At the end, she sees the end of the world and the death ghost is like, do you feel me? You know, he's like doing the two eye fingers towards his eyes, towards her. And she's like, oh, I... I recant my ways. And then she opens a window and she's like, hey, little boy, you know that big blood-sucking bat that lives in a cave? And the boy's like, yeah, yeah. She's like, go take it to Cain and Abel. Yeah, because Cain and Abel from the Sandman, but then at the time, House of Secrets and House of Mystery, who were horror hosts just like Elvira, but were incredibly obscured. (laughs) And she totally hates those bastards with great reason. They're super obnoxious. But they had kind of showed up to help her along with her journey, I guess. And (laughs) she was certainly not having it. At the end, she really just does pay a little boy to go Find a terrifying bat and let it loose in the House of Secrets and or the House of Mystery. She doesn't really specify or care. And I think it's probably the only example I can think of of a Christmas carol that breaks the formula. Yeah, right. It definitely is her not giving a shit <laughs> Like all. They totally underestimate that Elvira does not give any fucks. Yeah. She's, she gives zero fucks. She's done. She's there in a cleavage dress, which it's not sure suited doesn't. for time travel. 
No. She still sports it, but... She looked good. She does look great in the past, present, and future. <laughs> Even at the end of the world, if I was looking good. Yeah, absolutely. Then the other stories, there's like these these three short stories. None of which have Elvira in them. She's just not in them. Maybe like the first 10 pages have Elvira and then... The, we're and done. in the very last page, she's in a very saucy Santa outfit. That's so. right. That gave me Santa feelings I that like, I didn't know I was going to have. So the other three stories, the first one's kind of like, ugh, like yeah. not great. It's about like a robber or a thief who's trying to get away from the cops. So he dresses as Santa. Mm-hmm. And then he breaks into someone's house. Yeah. And there's like a little girl who's like, Santa, I can hear you. And it turns out she's blind. Right. And it's... He continues to rob the house even though she's blind and it's all, you know, the Moppet who is disadvantaged being taken advantage of story. So it is a little rough to read right now because it's ableism at its finest um, slash its worst. And yeah, that was all kind of weird, but it all comes back around whenever he tries to escape and the real Santa shows up actually... Gives this girl the power of her sight back, which is fucked up. Little wrong. But also, <laughs> he goes to hop back in his sled and does absolutely run over the guy and leave him <laughs> crushed underneath the sled. And that's kind of the moment where the story comes back around and really finds its footing again. Yeah, it's a Every- real Elvira twist of like, you think the moral's one thing, but hey, guess what? There's not one this guy's dead. Yes, he's just dead now all of a sudden. <laughs> ah, 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 ah. Like in a Santa suit bleeding out. It's yeah. It's funny. Actually a very Elvira moment. So I was baffled kind of through that entire story. And then on the last page, I was like, okay. Check plus. <laughs> Santa just murdered someone and everything's fine. <laughs> but the last two are really, really, really funny. Mm-hmm. One is about the yuppies. Cr- oh, yes. Terrible yu- yuppies. Oh, my God. There's these unbearable people who are just like so rude to their neighbors and like everybody a hates terrible them. white people couple of like the 80s, essentially. The man is manly and the woman is very silly. And- oh, I just need the biggest, bestest tree. These trees are too. We're going to go to the wilderness and we're going to find ourselves a tree. But guess what? (laughs) That tree is not a regular tree. It is a killer tree. It's alive. So they bring it into their house. And yeah, essentially they just get super murdered by the tree. And it's honestly great. Amazing. (laughs) And like their neighbors are standing outside being like, well, I didn't really like them that much. Did you? No, I wasn't Uh, a big fan. I think they were like, was there a house here? (laughs) And it's just like a big tree now. So funny. Yeah, that one was cool. I liked that. And then the last one's like a night before Christmas mm-hmm. kind of poem. And it and rhymes. all through the house, but it's... But it's about how nuclear Christmas has fallen. <laughs> so it's nuclear winter and there's nothing alive anymore. Mm-hmm. And some aliens come to the earth. And my favorite line is, all of the creatures that once seemed ubiquitous had been irradiated and turned into something quite liquidous. <laughs> Poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Then, just as the aliens are leaving the planet, they see that there's, like, a bomb coming at them. And they're terrified because they're like, oh, my gosh, this is what killed the planet. We must destroy it. And then you find out it's Santa. (laughs) And then it's, uh, yeah, he's dead. He's dead. He's hit by bombs. And space smells like um, reindeer meat. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I forgot about that little detail as a vegan. (laughs) That was something I wiped from my memory immediately. Totally fine with Santa just getting bombed out of the sky, but 
But not the reindeer. Those Come on, little now. reindeer didn't do what anything. What did they do? Exactly. So then it cuts to Elvira and her Santa suit. The end. I do want to talk about Elvira's Santa suit and how that changed my life a little bit and my feelings towards Santa. Well, that's the end Is of the story. Yeah. Uh, I like that it doesn't have... That's a great story. That's, that's one for the record books. But I do like this suit doesn't have like any legs. It's like a, what do they call Like a leotard? Mm-hmm. But it has like the fur. Yeah. So I imagine it's a little itchy. I like that the suit has no legs and also that this story has no moral whatsoever. <laughs> Everything that happens to everybody is just terrible and it's really funny. And uh, Elvira, you're the worst, best. Love it. Love Elvira. <laughs> Love the story. Ha- happy holidays. Happy holidays. Elvira. Only. Thank you so much to our special guest, Ilana Levin. If you have questions for Bitches on Comics, or if you're a comic creator and want to send us copies of your work, please email us at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. Gmail does not like the word bitch, so make sure you leave the I out, otherwise we won't get your email. Remember, there is no I in bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We also have a Patreon, www.patreon.com slash bitchesoncomics, where we have exclusive content. I'm Essie Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at essiefleenor.com. I'm Sarah Century, and you can learn more about me at www.sarahcentury.com. Music provided by Earth Control Pill, which you can find at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded and edited by Kate Warner. Learn more about Kate and her band, Churchfire, at churchfiremusic.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.